Welcome to The Dream Show. I'm Jane Theresa Anderson and this is episode 274-274. And during 2023, we've been departing from our usual podcast format to bring you the audio version of my most recent book, Bird of Paradise, subtitled Taming the Unconscious to Bring Your Dreams to Fruition. And today's episode is part nine of the 10-part series. Each episode is standalone, but you'll get maximum enjoyment if you begin with part one, which is episode 266. If you love the guest format, don't worry, it will return in late November 2023 when we've delivered all 10 episodes of Bird of Paradise. And remember, you can go back through every single episode of The Dream Show all the way back to our first episode in 2009 and listen to my conversations with our guests as we explore their dreams at janetheresa.com. That's Teresa without an H, janetheresa.com. And publishing the audio version of Bird of Paradise through the podcast means there's no fee for you, but if you'd like to express your appreciation and enjoyment, I'd like to encourage you to buy the paperback version for yourself or as a gift for a friend or two. Thank you. If you've missed the previous episodes of Bird of Paradise, here's a quote from the back cover to give you an idea of what's in store as you listen. Bird of Paradise is an inspirational guide to finding your calling and navigating your life using dreams, mysteries and alchemy. It's part whimsical memoir, part healing balm and part alchemical guide and it delivers my down-to-earth tools and techniques for decoding dreams and synchronicities as well as my unique signature alchemy practices that enable you to flow and grow with life's challenges, paradoxes and mysteries. So here we go, part nine. Cosmos. An ordinary fairy. (laughs) A fairy floated by. Oh, it wasn't a real fairy, but a fluffy seed like the dandelion seeds we called fairies when I was a child. Only it didn't really float. It lingered right in front of my eyes, then danced a little before flying away, leaving these words in its wake. I was sitting in my garden, quite an ordinary garden really, yet often the place where an idea for a new blog comes to mind. I was thinking about the following week, about celebrating my birthday and Christmas with my family. I was also remembering how my father used to say at the end of each Christmas day, well, that's it for another 364 days then. My heart would always sink at the prospect of plunging back into the ordinary after such a perfect day. How things have changed, I thought, or more accurately, how I have changed over all those decades of learning to see the perfect in the ordinary. It was at that moment that the fairy flew into my vision. I haven't been aware of those fairy seeds floating about recently, and certainly not one as in my face as that one was. It's a fairy, 
I imagined saying to my granddaughter Isabel, who was nearly four at the time, and who would be there the following week for our celebrations. Why is it a fairy? I heard Isabel ask in my imagination. Well, (laughs) it's really a seed flying through the air to find a perfect place to grow, but it flies and dances like a fairy, doesn't it? At that point, the fairy seed zoomed right up close (laughs) and performed her captivating dance just for me. And for you, as it turned out. She danced a tale about a seed that was a perfectly ordinary seed flown by a magnificent, perfectly directed breeze right into my line of vision, matching my early morning thoughts. Seeing the perfect in the everyday is a blessing. Experiencing the deeper mystery of the guiding breeze is doubly so. I didn't hear the birds singing until I listened, between the lines of my thinking, in the busyness of the to-do list day. I didn't hear myself breathing until I listened, beyond the lines of my thinking, to the peacefulness of the connected way. As above, so below. As above, so below. As within, so without. What do these ancient sayings mean to you? Legend has it that Hermes Trismegistus (laughs) inscribed these words in Phoenician on the emerald tablet somewhere between 1200 and 38,000 years ago. Yes, you did read those dates correctly. (laughs) No one knows where the tablet is now or whether Hermes was a real person, a god or a group of scholars. The emerald tablet tablet, purportedly a tablet of emerald stone inscribed with the secrets of the universe has been variously translated throughout the centuries and much debated. The text sets out the seven principles of alchemy, the main one being as above, so below. Alchemy is a secret language and not what it appears to be. It's a symbolic language articulating, for example, a method of transforming base metal into gold as a symbolic way of speaking about transforming base human consciousness into the gold of spiritual enlightenment. It's about keeping the magic in the hands of the masters or protecting the secret knowledge about the sacred laws and workings of the universe. One of the meanings of as above, so below is that the universe is reflected in everything. So that man, for example, is a microcosm of the universe. The argument goes that you cannot study man without studying the universe. And you cannot study the universe without studying man. However, because man generally lacks deep awareness of his inner world, his self, he can gain insight into his being by studying the heavens, cosmology, astrology, philosophy, God. I was reminded of the maxim as above, so below recently when I was having a conversation with someone about dreams and alchemy. I'm not an alchemist. I'm a dream alchemist. 
meaning that after I've analysed a dream and helped the dreamer understand more about her inner world or her inner self, I create, if desired, a dream alchemy practice to help her transform any limiting unconscious beliefs into new beliefs that support her personal growth. In modern day terms, dream alchemy is a a process of rewiring the brain or reprogramming the unconscious. In more exotic terms, the process works like magic and the alchemists of old might liken it to the alchemical quest of transforming base metal into gold. In poetic terms, I take the elements, symbols and emotions of a dream or nightmare and spin and weave and polish them into a positive, gleaming picture. I help the dreamer create a new dream seen and felt in her mind's eye within, which results in a positive, gleaming experience of waking life without. As within, so without. If, if that sounds reminiscent of the law of attraction, it's not the same. The law of attraction is about creating a literal picture of what you would like to attract into your life, you know, your ideal house, job or relationship, and then focusing on this picture until you, perhaps, attract said house, job or relationship. Dream alchemy is about working with the dreamer's unconscious mind and with her dream symbols. It's getting down deep into the guts of the mindset, doing the rewiring by speaking the same language the unconscious uses to express itself in the dream, the dream symbols and dream story. Come to think of it, your dreams might be seen as a secret language, like alchemy, a microcosm reflecting the macrocosm, as without, so within. Dreaming is a a two-way process. You dream to process your waking life experiences, to build a, a personal picture of the world as you uniquely perceive it. And then you wake up and experience waking life according to the personal picture that you have just laid down. As without, so within. As within, so without. But life is not one endlessly looping series of same-same days and nights. Things shift and change, subtly or dramatically. A surprising or traumatic waking life experience that shifts your perception is processed in your dream. As a result, your personal picture, your mindset, changes accordingly. Then you wake up and experience waking life according to the new personal picture that you have just laid down in your dream. As without, so within. As within, so without. And so we each dream our unique path through life, crafted by the unique perceptions of our experiences. And we each have the opportunity to wake up to our dreams to know ourselves more deeply within by studying our dreams. In so doing, we begin to see through the illusions of waking life to the true nature of the self and the universe. Why is grass green? 
Why is grass green? I was three or four years old and this was probably the hundredth question I had asked my mum that day. I was a curious child in every sense and a curious specimen, a child more interested in why than what. Oh, I don't know why, Mum replied, and I still remember her frustration, the toss of her head, because it's not blue. I don't know why I remember that particular incident, but I wonder if it was the first time I realised that parents don't know everything. If she'd been Buddhist, she might have answered, It is so, gently teaching acceptance of the way things are. But she wasn't and her frustrated answer led to my inevitable question. Why isn't it blue? Years later, I rushed home from a school science class to excitedly share that grass was green because it contained a green substance called chlorophyll. Strangely, Mum didn't share my excitement. I went to bed that night wondering why chlorophyll was green. A remarkable thing then happened. Growing up, I learned in my physics class that when we look at grass, a selection of light rays reflecting from the blades of grass enter our eyes and trigger nerve impulses that arrive at our brains and actually deliver an upside-down image of grass, kind of like a sky of grass and a field of sky. This happens because the lens inside the eye acts like a camera lens, it inverts the image. Our brains consult our bank of experience and decide that it makes more sense to see a field of grass and an overhead sky. So we do. It turns out that the brain interprets what we see, hear, feel, touch, taste to fit our expectation. The shift that happened for me that day was the realisation that the world we perceive is not the world as it is, but the world of our individual illusion. Why is grass green? A a colourblind person may tell you it's blue or red or grey or any other word that meaningfully describes their experience of green. So grass is green because... It isn't blue, because it is so, because it contains chlorophyll, because chlorophyll absorbs certain rays from the sun and reflects the rest that bundled together, scientifically speaking, make green. Grass is green because green is a word someone chose many generations ago to mean the colour of grass. Because I am English, not French, in which case it would be there. Because my brain chooses to have an experience it translates as green, and because I am not colour blind. There are so many reasons why grass is green physical, scientific, subjective, semantic, geographic, experiential. Oh, (laughs) and what colour is grass at night time when there's no sun, no light? It's black. And what colour is grass if you sign a red light on it? And so on and so forth. Thus, it is that our most basic question about grass, why is it green, is based on a false premise. Grass is just grass. And how green it it is all depends on your life experiences and the way in which you view it. 
What I love about interpreting dreams is that they help us to understand our individual perspectives of the world. The dreaming brain busies itself each night processing our recent waking life experiences and filing them away, usually according to what we already know. Interpretation reveals the makeup of the individual mindset, our programming. We get to understand why we process our life experiences the way we do and gain insight into our foundational beliefs and whether these are really serving us well. We get to, the quest- we get to question those foundational beliefs and perhaps change them if we wish. We see grass as green because our mothers told us it was green. So it is, indisputably so, because it's not blue. Or is it? Rainbow shades of grey. Why do we dream in black and white? It's a question I'm often asked and it always makes me smile. We don't, I reply. You don't remember noticing colours in your dreams, so you assume you dream in black and white and shades of grey. But now that you know you can dream in colour, you will. Within days or nights, such dreamers excitedly report colours showing up in their dreams. There might be a a flash of red, perhaps, or a golden sunset. Then a sudden rush of colourful details until the dream is as colourful as waking life or even vibrantly super-saturated, super-surreal. Yet, in another sense, we do tend to dream in black and white. The black and white of opposites. Look closely at most dreams and you'll see at least one pair of opposites. A dream might feature good and evil risk and safety, depth and shallowness, new and old, faith and doubt, the black and white, the either-or of issues that conflict us. Are you a black and white thinker? Do you see the world in black and white, right and wrong, good and evil? Do I hear a resounding no? (laughs) But look deeper And especially look at those pairs of opposites offered on a platter in your dreams. A dream theme peppered with risk and safety suggests you may, at least unconsciously, look at risk and safety as mutually exclusive alternatives. Things are black and white and there are no shades of grey. Perhaps you see life as frighteningly risky so you run for certain safety. Or, you see life as suffocatingly safe, so you choose the high adventure of risk. Here, there are no shades of grey. When you find your black and white blind spot, ask yourself who in your early life influenced your perspective. Continuing the example, you'll probably find that at least one parent or guardian valued risk to the exclusion of safety, or safety to the exclusion of risk. You either followed suit and took on the same values, or you retaliated in fear to occupy the opposite position. When you are awake to your dreams, you can choose to begin the healing work of finding a balance point between opposites, the Tao, the middle path, 
This deep work begins not with a decision to simply walk the middle path between black and white, but to explore and heal the origin of your beliefs and the emotions that cemented them in black and white. It involves recognising your shadow, what you see as bad, the black to your white. In this example, the shadow manifests as the urge to take risks that must be repressed for the sake of supreme safety, or the shadowy urge to stay safe, which must be repressed for the sake of adventurous risk. The deep work involves understanding and embracing your shadow, loving that part of yourself and integrating it into your being instead of banishing it from your kingdom. When you do this, the black and white of your staunchly upheld perspective gives way to an infinity of possibilities etched in innumerable shades of grey or colour. Why live in grey when you can live in colour? When you know that you can dream in colour, you do. When you know that you can live in colour, you do. I'm not really one for shades of grey. I prefer to take poetic licence and see the rainbow spectrum of brilliant colours that exist between black and white, which feels more intuitively correct. Think of the the font colour menu in, say, Microsoft Word. Black at the top left, leading through a range of colours to white at the bottom right. Scientifically speaking, white light contains all the colours of the rainbow mixed together. You only see the rainbow when you shine white light through a glass prism or when sunlight gets refracted by raindrops. Black is the absence of all colour. But look again. Scientifically speaking, black pigment is made from different colour dyes. And white pigment is generally the result of the absence of colour pigment. Let's leave the physics and semantics of black and white to delve into the poetic heart of the matter. Purple haze, or how things change. Picture this. You look into the mirror when you are three years old and recognise yourself. The next day, the mirror tells the same story and the next, and the next. Okay, so one day a tooth falls out and your mirror shows you without your tooth, but otherwise, nothing has changed. Day by day, the mirror tells you the same story. Yep, this is you, much the same as yesterday, really. Roll on a few decades. Today's face in the mirror might look a little tired compared to yesterday's after a big night out. Tomorrow's face might look younger because you slept well the night before, but hey, much the same as yesterday, really. Day by day, your face in the mirror looks the same, yet so many momentous changes have taken place since you were three. Even your oldest body cells are replaced every six or seven years. So your body has totally regenerated many times over since that time. But did you notice the changes? When did it all happen? When you interpret and work with dreams, a similar process occurs. Day by day, night by night, 
Your dreams hold up a mirror for you to scrutinize your reflection. This is who you are. These are the feelings you try to hide. This is what motivates you. These are the gifts you are too shy to shine. This is what hinders you. These are your buried hurts, your weeping wounds. See how they still shape your relationships. These are the beliefs about life that you have learned from others. See how they affect your vision. This is your mask. When will you take it off? Little by little, you begin to see truths about yourself and begin to understand why your life is the way it is. Small changes begin, often too small to notice on a daily basis, but they add up to momentous changes over the years. You gather confidence sharing your talents. You free yourself from hurt by forgiving the past. You let go of beliefs that have not been serving you well. And you begin to see solutions instead of problems, doorways instead of brick walls. I remember the time I bought my first Polaroid prescription sunglasses. And and the first time I wore them, it was way trippy, man. Everything was edged in purple and green haze. Short walks distended into prolonged contemplations of clouds and flowers and driving along psychedelic purple-green roads was distractingly dangerous. The next summer, I realised something amazing. I noticed that the purple and green haze had gone. Everything looked normal through the very same sunglasses. But when had all this happened? In terms of science and biology, my brain had become habituated. It had decided, without consulting my preferences, that the world wasn't really as purple or green as my glasses seemed to suggest. Thus, it deleted that input as irrelevant and possibly harmful to my survival. My brain made the executive decision to choose a world picture that, in its opinion, fit reality better than the reality portrayed by Polaroid lenses that bend and change the angles of some colours more than others. Why did my brain make this autonomous executive decision? It's all about survival. Have you ever bought a new alarm clock and been kept awake by its loud ticking? In only a few days though, the tick-tock has disappeared, unless you listen very closely. What happens is that initially you hear the clock ticking and your brain stays on alert in case the ticking is a predator keen on eating you while you are asleep. As time goes by, your brain decides that this ticking is obviously not a danger, so it habituates to the sound. It makes an executive decision to change your perceived reality to one with a silent alarm clock so that you can sleep undisturbed. You no longer hear the tick consciously, although it lives on in your all-seeing, all-hearing, unconscious mind, just as my unconscious mind remains deeply bathed in psychedelic purple and green whenever I read, whenever I wear Polaroid sunglasses. A more disturbing example of habituation was described to me by a woman who had just been persuaded to leave a violent marriage. 
During earlier counselling, she had been asked if her husband was violent. She had replied, no. She was then asked specific questions such as, when did your husband last hit you? Her answers clearly indicated a violent marriage, but she had experienced the violence for so long that she had accepted it as normal, not violent. Her counsellor opened her eyes by telling her how to kill a frog. If you put a frog in very hot water, it immediately jumps out to save itself. If you put a frog into tepid water and then slowly raise the temperature, the frog doesn't notice the small series of, series of small changes and eventually overheats and dies. If this woman had been following and interpreting her dreams, she would have been awake to her situation much earlier, discovering both self-understanding and empowerment to make a change. No matter how much the brain habituates and screens the senses, no matter how much material is deleted from the conscious mind, the unconscious records everything and reveals it in dreams. By now, there must be a huge question on your lips. If the brain habituates to a ticking alarm clock or to a purple-green haze to ensure our survival, what on earth is the survival advantage in habituating someone to a violent marriage? The answer is historical. The brain treasures its archives. Your early life experiences and memories help to create your fundamental beliefs about life and survival. For example, you might have experienced more contact and care from your mother when you were sick, so you learned that sickness is a good survival tool. Or you might have learned that doing what you were told was better than getting slapped, so you learned that obedience was a good survival tool. Or you might have learned that a parent gave you more loving attention after punishing you in some way because they felt guilty for having inflicted that punishment. In this case, you learned that accepting violence was a good survival tool. In the following years, your brain has done its habituating based on your list of essential survival tools that are securely ensconced in the archives of your mind. For life-enhancing change to be really effective, your fundamental beliefs need to be identified and re-evaluated. Your survival tools need to be sorted through and updated. Many need to be disposed of and replaced. Your dreams are the place to do this. Be ready to kiss a frog or two. Misinterpretation I have just watched a rather self-satisfied dog scare away a noisy garbage truck as only he knows how, with a volley of gruff barking and a telepathic get off my patch or else warning. It works like magic every Thursday morning. Well, that's the dog's experience anyway. That's how he reads the situation, I imagine, judging by the look on his face and the wag in his tail as he returns to the business of snoozing the morning away. 
Little does he know the truck driver can't even hear him above the grinding crunch of its innards beating a street's worth of garbage into submission. A cat I once knew had an even better magic trick. If she sat and looked at the front door in a particularly focused way, it opened. Her method never failed. Sometimes it took a little longer to achieve, perhaps. Perhaps, I imagine she thought, when the wind was blowing the wrong way and she needed to enhance her focus. Little did she know that whenever I noticed her sitting, staring down the door, I'd reach out and open it for her. She was too intent on performing her magic trick to notice little old me. We're much better than animals at knowing what's going on, aren't we? We learn from our experiences, test our theories, get consistent results. We understand life and how it works, don't we? Or are we just as blind to the hand that really opens the door to what's going on behind the scenes of our conscious awareness? Again, that's where dream interpretation helps. It allows us to see the bigger picture, to understand why we interpret or misinterpret our experiences the way we do, why we see the world the way we do. So next time you're busy making a big drama to scare an intruder off your patch, or wondering why doors aren't opening for you in the way that you want them to, look into your dreams to discover what's really going on. That's the power of dreams. Lucid dreaming and flying dreams. Of course this isn't a dream, I said. (laughs) Everything is perfectly normal. And anyway, if it were a dream, I'd be able to fly. I did a half-hearted little jump to prove my point to the two guys I was talking with, and instantly I shot up into the sky. So, I thought, my heart beating super excitedly fast as I looked down at the two men standing outside the church and Michael manoeuvring our car in the churchyard. Amazingly, this is all a dream. Who would have thought? I was lucid, awake in my dream, feeling totally present in my flying body while also being aware that I was taking part in a dream. I celebrated with with some fearless flying acrobatics, soaking up the sensations of superb ease and weightlessness before waking up in my bed. I do fly from time to time in my normal, non-lucid dreams, never surprised that I have the ability, always enjoying it, and never waking up to the fact that I'm dreaming. As for lucid dreams, I don't experience them very often. When I do, I usually have a a stronger sense of being in two realities at the same time, in the dream and also in my bed. I'm not talking about that sensation where you, you hover on the edge of sleep and catch that moment where hypnagogic imagery and sensations begin while you're still aware of being awake and in bed. Or at the similar sensation where you are beginning to awaken in the morning, yet you're still dreaming and and may be experiencing hypnopompic imagery. Much as I love those sensations of zooming up close to the dreamlike scenery and examining every hyper-real detail, I'm more aware of being in my bed than in the dream. Here I'm an observer given an amazing opportunity to explore although the emotional texture can be as real as being an observer in any life situation. In contrast, in my lucid dreams, 
I usually have a sense of equal investment in every reality, waking and dreaming. I can play with that notion, tipping it toward my awareness of being in bed, then tipping it towards my awareness of being in the dream, while somehow enjoying fully being in each reality simultaneously. In these dreams, each reality feels as real as the other, and each illusion feels as illusory as the other. The lucid dream I shared at the start of the story was different. Before reading on, I'm just going to um, read the footnote I've got here because you'll notice I talked about hypnagogic imagery and hypnopompic imagery and I've written something in the footnotes so some of you might want to know what they are. Hypnagogic imagery, or hypnagogic imagery, I'm not sure actually how, which way you pronounce it, are dreamlike images that often occur as you transition from wakefulness into sleep. They're usually fast and apparently unconnected and it's a bit like watching a random slideshow and they can include sound. Whereas hypnopompic imagery, these are, are dreamlike images that can occur as you transition from sleep into wakefulness. Or fragments of dreams if you begin to wake up while you're still dreaming. So if you open your eyes, your brain may decide to see these dream images superimposed on your sleeping environment, interpreting them, for example, as dark figures or, or ghosts in your bedroom. So that was a footnote. So I'm going back to continue reading about lucid dreaming and flying dreams now. Instead of gradually thinking during a dream that things suddenly seem a bit weird, and then beginning to wonder if I'm dreaming and then gently testing it by trying to fly, in my dream that I shared earlier, I absolutely knew that it wasn't a dream until suddenly I absolutely knew that it was. Somehow the, the sheer surprise that I had been so taken in by the dream, rather than catching it out, resulted in my attention being fully directed on being awake and flying in my dream, rather than noticing that I was also in bed. Listening to people talk about their lucid dreams, I'm aware that there are many different types of the lucid dream experience, and what one person might call lucid, another person might call semi-lucid or even non-lucid. But perhaps definitions don't really matter. Lucid dreaming, in whatever form, at heart, helps us to become more consciously aware of the illusory nature of whatever seems to be our reality. I don't set out to dream lucidly. I prefer to let my dreaming mind go through its natural processing and take me along for the ride, 100% invested in the dream. When I wake up in the morning, I can interpret my natural dreams to gain more insight into my mindset and my life. I can use this insight day by day, practically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually. Perhaps as a result, I'm generally more of a failed lucid dreamer, missing the cues with hilarious but deeply insightful outcomes, as you'll read in the next story. Many dreamers seek lucidity as a therapeutic, creative or exploratory space where they can engage with their dream symbols to discover more about them. Or perhaps they opt to explore changing the ending of their dreams, or practicing other forms of dream alchemy, or identify creative solutions to particular life challenges and issues. 
Others enjoy being lucid but letting the natural dream unfold, watching as an observer, noticing more detail than they might remember on waking from a non-lucid dream. One might question, though, whether simply being lucid does change the otherwise natural flow of the dream. I strongly suspect that it might. Every time you wake up from a non-lucid dream, you witness the transition from one reality you firmly believed in, the dream, to another reality you firmly believe in, waking life. Despite this, so many of us continue to believe in the solidity of waking life reality more. Others wonder if we might one day awaken from this waking life, not into a lucid dream, but into another reality, perhaps a life after death reality, or a sliding doors type of parallel life reality. One of the many gifts that our dreams, once understood, can bestow us is to soften us for change through waking us up to our conditioned notions of reality, our judgments and opinions, our biases, and to replace these with open-minded and open-hearted empathy and compassion for others and for ourselves. Here's another dream I had at that time. Yesterday, I was walking along South Bank in Brisbane after a visit to the theatre, talking to a friend about all of this. You see, I said, this is so obviously waking reality. If it wasn't, I could fly. I exaggerated a couple of flying attempts to make him laugh, much to the amusement of passers-by. I was rather surprised to wake up in bed a moment later. (laughs) Failed lucid dreamer. I've programmed myself to notice when cell phones appear in my dreams and then to try to dial Michael, my husband, by tapping the numbers on on the dial pad. In dreams, this can be really difficult to do. The dial pad morphs, (laughs) the numbers get jumbled or extra hashes or asterisk combinations are required. This complication is supposed to alert me to the fact that I'm dreaming at which point the lucid dreaming begins. In lucid dreams, we can explore being conscious in the dream state. We can take control of the dream if we wish, doing whatever we want with all of our senses alive. Or we can flow with the dream as a conscious observer, simultaneously occupying two parallel worlds, our dreaming world and the world of our waking life. One thing many lucid dreamers love to do is fly. Last night, deeply dreaming, The chair I was sitting on lifted into the air and then resettled onto the floor. My friends gathered around the table were amazed. It happened again, only the chair went higher this time. Then it did it again, but this time the chair zipped around the room. Finally, I flew the chair upside down before returning to the table. I had no idea that I was dreaming. I remembered being able to do this on many occasions and told my friends that although it was easy to do, the sense of wonder I experienced while doing it was always intense. An alert must have been raised at some level in my mind because I decided to find a cell phone and dial Michael. The cell phone was a tiny square iPod 
in the palm of my hand that morphed through several versions of iPods and iPhones before I summoned up one with reasonable dial function and began dialing. Still oblivious to the fact that I was dreaming, I told my friends that this kind of wonderful magic happens all the time in my life. So far, I had missed the clues that I was dreaming, and I continued to be clueless through all the complications of trying to call Michael. In the end, I gave up and wandered over to the corner where a scientist sat at a desk writing. As I was telling her about my wonderful magical life, she gave me a querying look, and the question formed on my lips, am I dreaming? I applied the acid test. I tried to fly without the aid of a flying chair. I rose to my tiptoes, bent my knees, flapped my arms, and tried to achieve liftoff, only to stumble about like a toddler trying to jump. Nothing. I was totally grounded. I couldn't fly, so clearly I wasn't dreaming. If I had been dreaming, I would have been able to fly, I reasoned. Clearly, I was awake. I was one failed lucid dreamer. While my dream was insightful on an analytical level, it was a dialogue with my scientific rational self about my daily experiences of life's magic, that's not the point of this story. The beauty of lucid dreaming is not so much the opportunity to consciously play within a dream, but the opportunity to wake up to the illusion of reality while deep in the experience. In lucid dreams, I have not been able to truly distinguish which reality, dreaming or waking, seems more real to me. On a daily basis, we all wake up after a night's sleep, somewhat surprised to yet again emerge from a reality we believed in. We might be wowed by the magic and the mystery of potentially experiencing awakenings into a series of other worlds. Or we might sit with our current waking reality and ask how we might acknowledge our illusions, our beliefs, judgments, trials and tribulations and hold them so lightly that true magic happens. And that's the end of part nine. So thank you for listening to part nine of Bird of Paradise. The next instalment, part 10, will be released as episode 275 on the 2nd of November 2023, if you're listening to this in real time. Remember, you can buy the paperback or digital version of Bird of Paradise wherever you usually buy your books or look under books on the menu on my website at janeteresa.com. janeteresa.com is also where you can go to discover my other books and courses, as well as to consult me privately. And janeteresa.com is also where you can go to listen back through all previous episodes of The Dream Show. If you're keen to listen to guests exploring their dreams with me, go to episode 265 and work back from there. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of The Dream Show. I'm Jane Teresa Anderson.